0: I've never read Joshua six that I didn't think about this song. I want to sing it. You sing along with me. Let's see if you know it. I might kind of date myself here, but who knows? Maybe you've heard it too. It goes like this: Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And the walls came down. Man, all of you are older than you think. That's amazing. <laughs> I remember as a as a high schooler and as a college kid, watching a cappella choirs and different groups sing that, I always thought to myself, how did they get fit out of fault, you know? Joshua fit to battle. And I learned more about the song and the culture where it came from, and then that famous phrase, and the walls, came a-tumbling down. That song was kind of stuck in my mind, you know, you hear that and... Every time I read Joshua 6, I think about that and how great our God is and how He reigns and how His supremacy is shown in Joshua 6 in some incredible ways. Now, as you're turning there, and I'm, I suspect you're already there, I want to make sure that you understand how we get to Joshua 6. Because this life of victory, this, this uh, promised land that we've been pursuing, and by the way, the promised land for us is Ephesians chapter 1, This land, so to speak, of every spiritual blessing. It's living the life that God intended us to live, a victory over sin. It's not a physical place any longer. It's not some health and wealth theology. It's not a new Lexus or a, or a house, you know, in some great rich area. It's, it's a life of contentment marked by godliness and victory over sin. So regardless of our economic status, regardless of our financial situation, or our race, or our color, or our job, or our home location, we can live, what, victoriously. We don't have to be bound and, and chained by the sins that what the writer of Hebrews say so easily beset us. But we can uh, see through Christ's victory over those. That's possible. That's Ephesians 1. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing, but most of us don't think that's really possible. And so videos like what you've just seen and songs that we've heard, they hit us like, well, that's for somebody else. No, victory is for you. In fact, let me show you how the journey of the Israelites up to Joshua 6 relates to us. Now, as you know, the Israelites are an Old Testament type of the New Testament believers' journey as well. They were in a physical journey. We are in a spiritual journey. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Remember when they were in Egypt, which, by the way, Egypt's a picture of sin. They left Egypt, they were released from Egypt by the power of the Lord. And remember the Passover and the blood of the doorpost is a picture of our redemption. Israelites were released from that sin city called Egypt. No, it's not Las Vegas. It says Egypt, okay? Uh, And then, of course, in their first initial encounter at Sukkoth is where they uh, were circumcised in the Red Sea. And then later, of course, at Gilgal, that whole experience there in both times uh, uh, reminds us of God's mark upon us in baptism. For them, of course, it was circumcision and the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, For us, it's baptism how God marks us. So you see some similarities here. They reach this point where they're going to march across and, and conquer the Promised Land, but instead they, in disbelief, chose to wander for 40 years. And what a picture of the believer who, when not living by faith, will wander in disbelief. Can I remind you, the just shall live by faith. Amen? Not only at the moment of salvation... But throughout the life, as we see in Hebrews 11, faith is the standard operating procedure for the Christian. And when that is nixed, when that's not possible, when we say, I'm not going to do that, we find ourselves like the Israelites, wandering, living in disbelief. They finally came back around to this place, they crossed the Jordan River. It's a picture of our faith that God will conquer and will see us through. And so we crossed the Jordan. And here the Israelites are now at their first battle of Jericho, the very first city of the Promised Land. They conquer it and they begin to inherit the blessings that God gave them, this land of rest. Now listen very carefully. With all due respect to our southern gospel industry, the Jordan River does not mean death. I know there's a host of songs that talk about how one day we're going to cross over, twang, 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 and then we're going to land on the other side, twang, 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 you know. And hey, you know what? The truth is, the Jordan River is not about death, and the Canaan land, the promised land is not heaven. That's a picture of the victory that's attainable here and now. The Jordan River represents those areas of our faith that that we refuse by faith to trust God with. Jericho represents those battles that are in the, the land of every spiritual blessing. We think, God, can you really give me victory there and there and there? Yes, God can. And just as they showed us physically their journey, so our journey is spiritual to a land of victory. And I want to embolden each of you to the best of my ability to pursue a life of victory. Trust God for what you may think is impossible. Trust Him for what is possible only through your great King. Amen? So here we are at Joshua 6. They've crossed over. They've been marked at Gilgal. Now they're facing their first battle. Joshua chapter 6. Verse 1, the Bible says that Jericho was tightly shut up. Now, now, while you with that phrase in your mind, let me just kind of paint a picture of what that might have looked like. How was Jericho tightly shut up? Well, first of all, I want to make sure you understand what Jericho actually was historically. It was a land that was probably, and I'll give an estimation here, but how have you seen our land over on State Street? Raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay, and if you haven't seen it, it's about a nine-acre plot of land. Jericho was about an acre smaller than our land. That's all. It was about eight and a half, eight acres. Most scholars have never placed it above ten, and I've never found any historical sightings or excavations that make it less than about seven. So we're safe to say it was probably about the size of our land. It was walled with uh, walls that were about 60 feet high, approximately 40 to 60 feet high. They were probably 15 to 20 feet thick, and that kind of kept the whole city in. They had a couple of gates, they had walls inside the city whereby you could kind of, excuse me, ramps inside the walls. You could kind of climb up to your house in the corner or your house in the middle. And that's how the people lived. And when they shut this city tightly up, they closed every gate and they, and they would not allow you to enter in or to exit. Now, that may strike you as odd because you probably picture Jericho like I did, like some massive city like Ankeny. How did they march around something that large? It really wasn't that large of a city. Now, it was large for that day and age. Because here's, here's the landscape of the Promised Land. Picture Jericho now, about the size of our land, let's say, and, and kind of walled in. The Promised Land was a series of fortresses or cities, just like Jericho, that dotted this this region known as Canaan. That's what the Promised Land was. And so when, when Israelites crossed Jordan, in, in your mind's eye, picture an army looking at... At multiple fortresses dotting the landscape of the promised land. And if they could attack Jericho, they could split the land in half, north and south, and then conquer one side and conquer the other. And that's exactly what they did. So the Jerichoans, if that's even a word, the Jerichoites, they were watching the Israelites advance towards them. And they began to obviously be scared and their hearts melted in fear, as other verses say. And so they shut the city tightly up. No one came in and no one went out. Verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See? I have delivered Jericho into your hands. It's like Jer- uh, Joshua. Do you see the city? They're scared to death. So guess what, Joshua? I've already delivered them into your hands. You ought to underline the word delivered and you ought to put an extra dark underlying area with the words, the letters E-D. God has already considered this a done deal. Hasn't He, church? He says, Joshua, you have not even gone to battle, but guess what? I have already delivered. And I was thinking last few weeks about this phrase. And I've just been saying to myself this. I need to catch up to where God already is. Are you with me? And I see bills in front of me. I see relationships and situations. And I'm thinking, man, what's going to happen? And God is already there. Take heart, church. God is there and has has won victories already. Our job is to follow Him in faith on this side. To catch up with Him, shall we say. I love the fact that God sees the future almost as if it's a present reality. He says, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. And here's how I want you to do this, Joshua. And verse 3 begins a description of, of God's method taking the city of Jericho. He says, march around the city once more, excuse me, march around the city once with all the armed men and do this for six days. And a lot of you know the story, so I'm not going to read this uh, verse for verse, except to make a few notations. They were to march around the city in a certain type of processional. You'll read these next several verses and it looks like the procession was like this. Watch this, okay? There was an armed front guard. We're not sure how many it was. Then there were seven priests They each had trumpets. And then there was the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was a rear guard. And this was the processional that they were to use to march around Jericho at least once a day on the seventh day, of course, seven times. Behind the rear guard, there seems to have been some of the people. Now, I'll be honest with you. Textually, I don't know if all the people marched because they were numbered about two million. Two million people around the, uh, something the size of our land would be an incredible logistical sight to see, wouldn't it? I'm not saying it didn't happen. We're, we're not really told textually for sure. I always thought they did, but it's hard just in the last few weeks to really know if they did. We do know the people had some part in the march, though. And so we're just not sure how that happened. We don't know how many armed men were in the guards either. Numbers 26 tells me that there were 600,000 registered or censored, shall we say. They were, they were counted in the census. 600,000 men available. Do they all march in these front and rear guards? I don't know. It doesn't say. If they did, I can see why the city was tightly shut up. <laughs> Can't you? That's a lot of soldiers around nine acres, eight or nine acres. That's an incredible sight. But regardless of all the facts we don't know, we, we know this. There's a certain processional, the front guard, the seven priests, the Ark of the Covenant, the armed guard in the rear, and then some type of people that on the seventh day, after watching around it seven times, then the trumpets blew after the seventh time, and all the people were then to give a shout. And God said, Upon that shout, the walls will do what? Say it with me. They're coming tumbling down. You should have been inquiring. Right? They did a good job on that. Now, there's a processional to it. There's also some protocol mentioned in these chapters. Let me give you some some details about the protocol that was part of God's method. One is that they weren't to say a word until the seventh time around the city on the seventh day. And then they were to shout. Until then, in fact, Joshua says, don't even say a word. Don't you like it how sometimes before God's magnificent works are displayed, he asks for a quietness on the scene. Remember the Jordan River? He said, tomorrow we're going to cross, but today you're going to consecrate yourselves. Remember in Exodus over the Ten Commandments? He said the same thing. You'll find that sometimes God, before He really displaces power, He wants to reveal Himself to you and, and calls upon you for a quiet moment. It's this idea of meditation before magnificence. It's the idea of the heart before the hand. I'd encourage you that If you're just too busy to get along with God, if life's too fast and too hectic to ever find time to be still and know that He's God, don't be surprised if you find the inability to see His power on your behalf. He calls upon them to be quiet and to be still. Now, I think that was only during the marching. They probably went back to camp at night and they were themselves. But during the time of the battle processional, the protocol was not a word. There's some interesting things as well here. I love how the fact the ark went in the very front representing the presence of God, went before the people, just like it did in the Jordan River. Also, I like the word seven. It was mentioned lots of times here. Seven priests with how many trumpets? Seven trumpets. And how many times did they march around on the seventh day? Seven. That's an interesting word number because seven is the Hebrew word for completion. It means to, to bring to a completion, to fill up. And so on the seventh day, God brought to completion... The victory that He had already promised them. I also love one more thing in here. The horns they were supposed to sound. The trumpets they were supposed to blast. It's an interesting thing in the Hebrew text. And let me just kind of give you a couple of Hebrew words. This is not meant to impress anybody, but it needs to be said so you understand what we're saying. The word for trumpet in Hebrew is actually shofar. It's kind of the word that they've used. But in this passage, there's additional words used describing how they use this trumpet. And the word is yobel. Which means it's how we get the word Jubilee. Now, watch this. These trumpets, this ram's horn, was not used in this case to call the army to battle. It was used to call the army to celebration. Which says to me, when they sounded the horns of Jobel or of Jubilee, they were signaling, hey, the time of freedom's here. It's not a time for battle. We've already won. Let's go in and claim what's already ours. God was saying, guys, The battle's mine. You just go in and celebrate. I mean, it's further proof that God was already there. And in the horns they blasted, in the way they marched, in their protocol and processional, in God's mind, it was a settled victory. And they were kind of like catching up to God. Well, that most of all, that takes place pretty much through about verse 14 or so. Look with me at verse 15. It says, On the seventh day they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except on that day, they circled the city seven times. And the seventh time, around when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, he said, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city. And don't you like how Joshua even used the past tense word there, right? Has given. The city and all that is in her are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. And then he talks about how they're not to keep anything but to give everything to the Lord. And verse 20, When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, say it with me, the wall collapsed. Let's say it in our vernacular. And the walls came a-tumbling down. Now, just to let you know something, scholars, liberal scholars try to uh, excuse the miracle by saying it's just the vibration of feet and the high pitch of trumpets, and the loudness of voices, and it kind of cracked the walls like it cracked the glass. You kind of with me there? I mean, God could have used the natural things in life to still win the battle, right? The point is, the children of Israel obeyed God, and the walls collapsed. Was it a result of of certain kind of sound dynamics? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but I know this much. The Bible does say that the walls came tumbling down when the people obeyed God. So God may choose to meet your needs through our medical doctors. Do you know that? He may use known science and, and, and actual wisdom He gave people to heal you, to help you. He may use a thing called a job to help you meet your bills. Are you with me? The miraculous is not always something hidden from our eyes in a way that we think, well, God, You did this in a way, hey... Sometimes it's right around us and God could have very well used the things that He created, the, the, the facts and the principles that He made to the universe to bring about a great victory. The walls came tumbling down. And it says that the people, every man, charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. You now that's a hard verse to hear, isn't it? That's hard to swallow, but I think behind this is God's real intention was to purify to Himself a people. Bring into Himself a people unspotted, as the Old Testament said. He wanted to call them out from the pagans of the world. And I remind you that it was only in their disobedience that we find Israel polluted, shall we say. Someone said, well, Rahab, she was a foreigner. You're right. But she came in God's way, didn't she? By faith. In fact, the Israelites were always welcome to foreigners who would come God's way. But it was in those intermarrying years. It was in those times of disobedience. It was when they went against God on their own terms that we find suddenly there were were major problems with their children and, and dysfunction in families and the land not being totally theirs because they left people alive that should have been killed. In other words, God was really desiring a people that were pure and separated. And I think the picture there for us is this. We should not leave any corner of our life unattended to. It is God's desire that you be a pure and spotless and holy people for his name. And often just like in this physical cultural, they would leave a little bit on the property here and leave let this family live and when God had given orders, destroy everything. Well it's hard to understand his desire was for a pure and holy people. And in our life right now, he desires for every sin. To be exterminated. He wants you to deal with every single thing in the corner, in the basement. God wants you for Himself. In fact, the prophet said He's a jealous God. That ought to really raise the level of the kind of affection we should have for our Lord and our God. No competition. That's what God's after. And I think that's some of the heartbeat, some of the color behind this passage. I admit to you, that's difficult. In fact, the entire book is difficult from that angle. But when you understand the heart of God for His people... Begin to see why there was no room to uh, to like vary, we couldn't compromise an inch. He wanted holiness and purity. Well, on the heels of that, we read that Joshua said to the two men in verse twenty two, they're about to destroy every living thing. He says, "Listen, don't destroy Rahab and her house. You bring her out in accordance with your oath to her." And so they did exactly that in verse twenty three. And look at the last part of twenty three; they brought out her entire family, so they all must have believed her and got inside her house, right? and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. You say, Todd, that sounds kind of mean. It's not very friendly. How is that a first family posture in Joshua 6, right? Well, understand what's going on here. That Based on the Old Testament law, foreigners were welcome, but they had to come God's way. Are you with me? You ought to read uh, in Exodus after they came out of Egypt. and. God gave clear instructions for how they could circumcise the males of those who were in foreign families and how they had to treat those who weren't natural-born Israelites, so to speak. His heart was always open for those who believed by faith, but had to come by faith. And so, as she was outside the camp, I think it's the place where they put the family while they circumcised the men in the family, while they marked them as one of God's. So here they are. They're outside the camp. They're trampling on the city of Jericho. They burn everything in the whole city, verse 24 says. and They put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron in the treasure of the Lord's house. And Joshua spares Rahab. and It says she lives among the Israelites to this day. What a neat story. What a great uh, record of God's victory at Jericho, the very first battle. It says that if you try to, of course, Joshua pronounced a curse in verse 26. If you try to rebuild Jericho, there will be a curse on you. Uh, and verse 27 says that because of this victory... The Lord lifted up Joshua and His fame spread throughout all the land. It said He was with Joshua. As we close the chapter out, you find that Joshua is really raised in the eyes of the people. And they realize that God and Joshua were leading well. And you know what? The the victory was God's and Joshua was God's man at that time to help the people go to victory. Listen very carefully. There's nothing in that last verse that has any semblance of relation to a church and its pastor. Are you hearing me? I've heard some folks use the verse and say, man, when we go well as a church, we ought to make sure our pastor's fame gets spread. Baloney. That's crazy. In fact, let me just theologically show you what this verse means. Joshua is a type of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if this verse means anything in typology, it means this, that when victories are won... Man, don't raise up human leaders. Lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who gets the credit. After all, He's the captain of our salvation. Hallelujah. He's the one that should get the credit. And we work really hard at First Family to keep human personalities out of the picture as much as possible. It's not impossible. There's an element of that that we admit. But I'll tell you something. When things go well, and don't clap for your leaders that are human. Man, give the Lord A round of glorious applause. Amen? And as we win victories, I pray that God's fame will be spread throughout the land. As our Jericho, so to speak, tumble, I pray folks will look at you and do it Matthew 5.16. That they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And the more He is raised, the more He is praised, man, that's just good for the kingdom. Is your life... And the victories you're winning, spreading the fame of God? What a neat story here. The walls came tumbling down, Jericho's conquered. When I read this story, I'm left with a single fault. There's a thousand principles here, there's a lot of neat things we talk about, but I'm left with one thing that really just has been ringing in my mind, and that's this phrase God's ways are not our ways. Could you say that with me? Here we go, ready? God's ways are not our way. Let's do it one more time, ready? God's ways are not our ways. They're not. And that's an overriding observation that just seems to enwrap this whole chapter. Let me give you some textual proof of that. In how they thought, God proved not to think like they thought. Are you with me? I mean, if I was the military general, I probably wouldn't depend on shouts and footsteps to conquer a city. And I sure wouldn't take an armed guard in the front and back and just a box that was said to represent the Lord. I'd take all I could. I'd go in with sledgehammers and spears and I'd find somewhere to knock those walls down. But God's method was different because it relied upon faith. And in obeying the Lord, as weird as it may have seemed, Around the city once, six days in a row, then on the seventh day, seven times, and then when you hear the trumpets shout, the walls will collapse. Okay, God, if you say so. You know, it really wasn't in the method, but it was in the heart behind it. When they obeyed God, God took it upon Himself to give them the victory. See, it's unconventional warfare, no doubt. Does that not speak to the kind of war we fight? I mean then in Joshua six twenty it was unconventional. Now in Ephesians chapter six verses ten through twenty, we also fight unconventional warfare. In fact, Paul said it like this, he said, We do not fight against what? Flesh and blood. In other words, you don't see your enemy. We fight against spiritual wickedness, principalities, and powers. And throughout that passage, the number one weapon mentioned is prayer. There's the form of God, no doubt. But prayer is mentioned repeatedly. It's the only weapon mentioned more than once. Can I say to you, church, listen very carefully. When you're fighting, your best position is on your knees. I recall a pastor years ago in a small community ministering to just a select group of people, a rural area. They were bringing in a strip club slash bar to that area unknown to that town and, and the citizens were upset and they were trying to picket and talk to the city council and they agreed to go to the property they were going to build this site and they were going to march and they were going to hold up signs and as the citizens even the church members were there they saw their pastor on the side of this property just on his knees and one of the members said pastor man how can you shepherd the sheep right now join us and he said excuse me I'm fighting the wolves and sometimes, sometimes we fail to remember that prayer is not the least we can do. It is the best we can we can we can do. I said this to some of you, and I want to apologize right now. As you shared your heart, as you've said what's going on in your life, I said, "Well, I you to know, at least I'll be praying for you." <laughs> that's not a that's not a real theologically sound sound comment, okay? And that's not a pastor's heart to say. At least I'll be probably praying for it. I don't think you know my heart in that. But sometimes we say, man, the least. No, first thing I'll do is pray. Maybe God would intervene and step in and solve even before human action is necessary. And He could, amen? If the children of God pray. It is unconventional. It's a little different. But it's the way God operates. Prayer is fundamental to the march of His Christian army. Yet sometimes I find myself doing everything but praying. You know that way sometimes? I've got my to-do list and my agenda and man, I'm doing what I can do and I'm working, working for the Lord and I'm spreading them in the message and I'm building the kingdom and all of my human activity and I've not prayed but a few seconds. And it's no wonder my life is powerless. Most of you are like me. You're too busy not to pray. May we obey Ephesians 6. Just as dare... Warfare was unconventional, so so ours is. And may we obey the Lord, our commander, and pray above all else. Amen. Are you praying for Fay, who's in Afghanistan right now? I hope you are. How about our folks in Australia? Both of these two mission teams out in ministry. Are we praying for them? Not first coming and visiting. Folks in your neighborhood who are unsafe, are you praying for them? Are you praying, interceding, that God won a victory for them? I also think I think it's interesting how how his ways were not their ways and what they kept. This is an interesting thing to me. That in this battle, the children of Israel didn't keep anything. Now often, God would allow them to keep some of it and then they would maybe give a portion. But in this case, they were not, were not, were not, were not to keep a single thing from Jericho. You know why that is? Because Jericho was what we call a first fruits City of the Promised Land. Promised Land. In other words, it was that initial city, and God said, "You know what? I'm going to want 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 the first fruits of your victories." And so Jericho was the first the first, first city that applies throughout the Bible. In fact, Proverbs three nine actually says, "Give your first fruits to the, to the Lord." You see, folks, I'm talking about more than money. He says, "It goes back on the, on the offering thing." No, I'm, I'm really not. not, not, not. I not. I, I'm talking about lot a, a lifestyle of give, giving God the first of our, of our life, not the last or what's left over. Amen. Now, 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 when it now, when it comes to food, comes, comes to food, I love leftovers. At our, at, our, at our home, at our home, at our home, home we have. At our home, we have. We have. At our, God is not, like not like my leftovers. He's a first fruits kind of God. Of God. This principle is repeated, repeated, repeated all through the New Testament. In fact, let, let me show you something in First Corinthians. You might want to jot this down. First, First Corinthians, chapter, chapter sixteen. It says. The church there was there was, there was wondering 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 how do we give Paul how do we collect and save so that we can help missions missions and help those in need need how can we further the work, the work of the church church he he said this watch this every man first Corinthians 16, one, he said every man on on the what day of the week that's the first fruits principle seen again again on the first day of the week you should, you should put it aside. Little by little, and save it, and then the the church, church, church would have the money it needs because everyone's been putting it aside on the first day of the week. You bring it together. You see the first fruits principle ringing out again. This happened with Abraham when the three visitors came to him. He gave them them the the best that he he, he had. You see this? You see this in the Levitical offering system, all through, 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 through the scriptures. God's economy has been this: I want the first and best you got. It was true. It was true in Jericho. This is the first first city, or the first 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 and best of your life. And I'm not asking about about your checkbook only. I'm asking about your life and your day is after work and then dinner and the kids and. Baths and shower showers and news and paper and say are we on the same page, same page here? I have a hard time believing that that at the end of the day, if it's the first time we talk to we talk to God, that's really our best. What I want to challenge you to do is figure out how, how, how in your day can and how in your week, how can you give God your best? Maybe it is at night. That'd be awesome. For a lot of you it is at night. That's great. Keep it up. To give God the morning for you would be a tragedy. You know what I'm saying? I'm with you. Some of us man, some of us man, man who gave God our night would be a tragedy. What I'm saying is this. God wants, God wants the very best we had to give Him. Read Malachi. The whole book of Malachi is a judgment against the religious leaders of Israel because they were giving God their leftovers. They had time and money for all of their stuff. But God got whatever was left. And you know what? We don't serve a leftover God. And so Jericho, what I see here is that God wants our first fruits. So in how they fought and what was kept and also who was saved, I see that they didn't think like God. They did think like that because in this case, I wouldn't have saved Rahab, would you? You wouldn't have. You're saying you would have, but I know you wouldn't have because you're just like me. You're acting all smug right now. But the truth is, you wouldn't have saved the prostitute. You would have gone for the city councilman or the insurance woman or the head of some committee who had money and had influence, you'd have found some way to save somebody who could make a difference for Israel. You know why I know that? Because too many churches always put their best businessmen in places of of spiritual leadership as if that were the criteria. criteria. Well, he made a lot of money, so he could probably run a church real good. I see. Now, where do I find that? Are you with me? See, humanly, we think, well... That would work in God's economy. But God doesn't think like us. His ways are not our ways. And He says those who by faith express their complete dependence on Him. People like Rahab. I love the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where it says that not one single idolater or greedy person or drunkard or adulterer shall have their place in the kingdom of God. And then it says this. That's what some of you were you was gonna get all over those who us who have habits of our past. But you know what? The truth is the church of Corinth was filled with was filled with people who used to be things that nobody here would dare touch, right? But the truth is that's the church at Corinth. And someone said to me a few weeks ago, Todd, what kind of church is first time and I said, It's a church when you come on Sunday morning and sit down, you're in the middle of people who used to be a lot of stuff. And if that makes you weird, then maybe it's not the church for you. That makes you feel funny because you know what? We've all, we're all sinners saved by the grace of God. People with a past, man, that's his whole room. Are you with me? How can God use that? I don't know. But 1 Corinthians tells me, verse 26 to 29, chapter 1, says that God does not call many mighty, many noble. He doesn't call those by human uh, uh, sight that seem worthy. He calls those who are low of heart. Those who we think are unworthy. What does James 2 say? Two folks come into your church, one wealthy guy and some really poor guy, and you give attention to the wealthy person, he says, man, that's awful. You're a judge of people. He says you should not treat folks different because of the outside. Amen? Are you with me? But see, that's not how we think. We we want to think based on what we see. But God sees the heart. And the heart of faith is the person He saves and uses. That's why Joshua 6 shows me over and over, God's ways are not our ways. But i got to tell you something. While His ways are not our ways, His ways are the best ways. Amen? Say with me. His ways are the be- best ways. It's very important that we complete that sentence. So just jot down. While God's ways may not be our ways, His ways are the best ways. I was thinking this week about some ways that that God's ways are the best ways for us. Just a a quick notation about some things that perhaps we, we might not think about in our culture, but truly they are definitely not like everyone thinks. The first one being, the way to God. We call it salvation. I'm looking for a book that I hear this. I like the way Andy Stanley puts this, so let me let him talk to you for a minute. In his book, How Good is Good Enough. It's a really good book. He says this, beginning in chapter 7. This is more of a shortened Cliff Notes version, by the way, my style. But he says this, Perhaps the most emotionally perplexing problem with the good people go to heaven view is that it contradicts the teachings of Jesus Christ. In fact, if good people go to heaven, then Jesus completely misled his audiences. And on at least one occasion, He wrongly comforted a dying man. The truth is, Jesus taught the very opposite of what most people in the world believe. He taught that good people don't go to heaven. He says later in the same chapter, Jesus claimed otherwise. Speaking of the good people go to heaven theory, He says He claimed otherwise. And if you embrace His teachings, you do so at your own risk. To side with Jesus is to embrace a completely different paradigm from what most world religions are teaching. Amen? See, I think it's important that you understand something. What you say you believe in, what this church preaches is that there's only one way to heaven through Jesus Christ, God's Son, and His death on the cross. That constitutes the gospel. And when one embraces the gospel by that and only that is someone saved. Are you with me? That goes against the grain of most people's thinking. I meet people every week who say to me, well, I think I've been good enough. I think I'll get there. I've done enough. I hope it works out. But Jesus', is Christ. Jesus teachings are the opposite. And folks, we must realize that, that God's ways are not our ways. And this morning, if you've been banking on maybe being good enough, perhaps doing enough, or, or any number of ways other than God's way, Jesus Christ and His death on the cross for us and His resurrection... Anything other than that will not land you in heaven with God. It only brings you to a place of condemnation when life is over called hell. And the way out of that is not to get mad at God or to pretend it's not true. The way out of that is to embrace the truth. It's to say, I reject my way of thinking and I embrace God's way. Are you with me? It's a paradigm shift. That's the road to victory. Not only in how we're saved, but also in how we relate to one another. I was thinking this week about uh, the vast difference in how the world says you get places and how Christ says you get places. I use that phrase kind of loosely there. Work with me. You know, in the Bible, we're told that we should, in humility, esteem other people better than ourselves. We're to serve one another in love. We're to look out and, and help other people serve them. Husbands, to love your wife sacrificially... Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. I mean, that's Christ's model. The world says, man, get what you can get and don't scoot over. Plow ahead, ahead. Manipulate leverage. Do whatever you've got to do. Leverage. Do whatever you've got to do. And if you have to act like you're listening, that's good. Act friendly and listen, but make sure that you do it because you know it's going to benefit you in the end. I mean, they're totally different approaches. And much of the... And much of the reason we, see defeat, reason we see defeat in our relationships is because we approach them from from the wrong angle. We don't take God's method. We think, well, that doesn't make sense. I, I can't serve and win, and so we choose, choose 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 the world's method and unbiblical thinking, and we end up with broken we end up with broken, broken relationships. We choose, wrong, we choose wrong, wrong avenues, and we wonder why we're at the wrong location. I'm at the wrong location. I, I challenge all husbands here. Serve your wife for six months. Serve her as Christ served and loved the church. I mean just love her unconditionally, sacrificially. See in six months of your marriage is it blossoming a whole lot better. And there may be some rare cases where one spouse will choose to react in a negative and opposite way. In those cases, I'll guarantee you this though the person who's chosen Christ like attitudes inwardly will still be grateful for the growth of those six months. Hey kids, see if obeying your parents doesn't really pay off. Give your mom and dad a shot. Listen to their input. Hear their words with humility, and say, you know, hey Dad, I see what you're saying. I appreciate that. And Mom, I know what your heart is. I just maybe you hear it like they're trying to hold me down and keep me in, and I don't know why I got a curfew of three a.m. I should be able to stay up till five a.m. And that's a little, you know, humor and jest. They work with me, but maybe you know you, you don't see it. But hey. Obey God. Trust the Lord that He knows what He's talking about in relationships. And honor and obey your parents and see that after six months, it's just not a little smoother in the family. Hey, dads, raise your kids with nurture and admonition and not provoking them to wrath. See if maybe you're not getting along better with your kids. Amen? I mean, there's just a host of ways we could apply this. But God's method of relationships is different than what we think naturally. I think about other issues like how we give and how we live, how we fight spiritual battles. All those are different ways this week I was thinking, you know what, it is true. God's ways are not my ways. I don't naturally think like the Father. But with the Word of God and the Spirit of God, He can give me the ability to think and obey Him and trust Him I'm looking at Jerichos that say, hey, there's no way that could happen, God. That seems insurmountable. It seems impossible. God says, and He whispers, well, trust Me. Do it My way and watch what happens. I know of a young lady in our church called me this week and said, Todd, I'm down to my last $16.52. I was kind of braced for a request. You know what I'm saying? And I was ready to help. She said, "I didn't call you for anything. I don't need any money, but I'm gonna tell you a story." She said, "She goes, I knew that I had not really given to the Lord, and I knew He was calling me to give, and so I gave sixteen dollars. I gave my last money to Jesus, and I was personally thinking, I'm not sure I would suggest that. And here I am, a pastor. I'm like, you know, I'm not sure I you read the Bible myself. I'm like, well, there's, you know, it's a better way. And I'm trying to think what I can say." And she goes, "But Todd, I just went ahead and said, Lord, you take care of me." And she goes, "I gave my money to the Lord." And she goes, Next thing you know, I got a check in the mail. And if you want a check in the mail, just relax. I'm not promising anything, okay? This is her story, her testimony. But she said, I'd done some work for someone in the past. I'd forgotten about it. And this person paid me. And the next couple of days, I got this check in the mail that was more than the bills I had that I thought I couldn't pay. She's, I'm just calling to tell you. $16 isn't much money. But it's a sign that God will always take care of me. Isn't that a great victory? I hope she journaled that on her victory marker. That's an awesome story. I'm not promising you a check in the mail. I'm not saying if you double that, you'll get more. None of those things I'm saying. I'm saying that when we're faithful to do what God said, His way, He'll do His part. That's all I'm saying. Amen? It may be different on your behalf. But God will always keep His Word. Always. God's ways are not our ways. But God's ways are the best ways. So knowing that, I call you to a paradigm shift. I call upon you to think differently this week. Don't think like the old man. Don't think like the human side of you. Don't think like the natural man. Ask the Lord to help you think like the the Christian, like the Holy Spirit indwelt new man that you are. Because Corinthians does say we have the mind of Christ. Amen? And we can know the heart of God. And as God reveals through His Word and His Spirit and His people, courses of action and things to do, that you think, man, that can be right. But God's Word says it, so I'll trust Him. I'll do it against the battle of the Lord. As we trust Him, do what He says, we will emerge on the side of victory. Much like the soldiers at Valley Forge. They were there exactly six months. And Valley Forge is not a place where battles are fought in the 1770s, but it was a place where we almost lost the Revolutionary War. Our soldiers were at an all-time low. Morale was below the basement level. And Washington was losing troops. Uh, Historical documents prove that many men were, were naked. One officer wrote in his journal, I just read this past few weeks, that... Quote, too many toes are black. The cold was, was horrendous. They were amputating toes and fingers from soldiers that were often naked. There was very little food. There was disunity. There were desertions. Disease was running through the camp. In Washington on a nightly base, basis faced this group of soldiers who were one to turn on him and head back to home. But he also saw the country and the maneuvering of the British troops and he was trying his best to get them in the best place to win. And and weekly, he would plead with his troops. Guys, trust me. This will work. We've got to, we've got to re-engage, but we've got to position right. Just trust me. Let's stay here. No, we want to go home. We're hungry. We're cold. we to die. Is it really worth it? And he would plead weekly and monthly. Hang in there with me. Don't leave me. Don't desert me. Sometimes in the Echoes of the far outer tents. You could hear the the chant that would start. It was just like this. Some documents I read said that they would make this chant. Beef. 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 And it would start catching on. And several brigades and tents would be hollering out. Beef. Beef. Because they were so hungry wanting food. And Washington said in some of his journals that often his heart would break. And his eyes would cry with tears. Because there was nothing he could do for his men. He would plead with them. Trust me. Most of them did. Most of the suffering that was done there was done because they trusted George Washington. And six months to the day, in June of that year, that army merged as a prepped, battle-ready army and it became the turning point in the Revolutionary War. And they had a paradigm shift from what they thought it ought to be, from what they were seeing. They said, no, we'll trust the general. You know what? When they did... They emerged victorious. I think some of that same attitude is what I need sometimes. When things aren't looking good and you think you're cold and you're just not working out. It's not going to happen, God. What's going on? He says and he whispers, trust me. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. We see the Jerichos. We think, what's going to happen? Six days, God. It's a long march. But the seventh day is coming. Amen? And when God gives the trumpet blast, when He gives the shout, so to speak... The walls will come tumbling down. But only in His time and by His way. Our goal is to do it just that way. In line with God. Could God give you a paradigm shift this morning? Would He have you embrace His line of reasoning? And put your arms around His teachings and His action plans? In that, you'll find your Jerichos tumbling down.